Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. As you may know by now, the Bureau is dedicated to collecting and recollecting half-lost, half-forgotten, half-remembered countercultural stories. And here we are in Soho, one of the centres of countercultural London back in the 50s and 60s. And in today's episode, we hear stories from and of the Flamingo Club, a nightclub in Soho. Uh, first of all, in Coventry Street and then more famously in Wardour Street. It lasted from about 1952 to 1969. Listen to this for a roll call of some of the musicians who played there. Dizzy Gillespie, Rod Stewart, Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, Zoot Money, John Mayer, Eric Clapton, The Rolling Stones, who are they? The Moody Blues, The Animals, Mick Fleetwood, Cream, Atomic Rooster, Pink Floyd, Alexis Corner, Brian Auger, Jack Bruce, Ginger Baker, Long John Baldry, The Small Faces, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, Billie Holiday, Tubby Hayes. Amazing. It was also a radical club in the sense of what it did for black music in London, as we shall hear. But our guide to the Flamingo Club is our old friend, he's back for more, uh, Pete Watts, blogger, extraordinaire, music journalist, cultural commentator, author, and all sorts of other things. Welcome back, Pete. Shall we just dive straight into the story of this amazing club? Yeah, I mean, I love the Flamingo. I'm, I think I first got interested in the Flamingo and I was... I was interviewing Pete Townsend um, about the Marquee because I was writing a piece for Uncut magazine about the Marquee. And, and his, his sort of first sort of words to me were, yeah, I didn't give a shit about the Marquee. For me, it was all about Flamingo. Um, and to sort of, you know, get such a response made me want to know a bit more. And um, the Flamingo was the kind of coolest venue in London in 62, 63, 64. But in a way that maybe it's kind of harder to appreciate at this distance in, in, in what it was doing and that's what we'll talk about hopefully th- through this show um it was an r&b club it was a um it was a it was a it was a mixed club it had a mixed clientele um and it was it played very very cool music from america and british bands who were trying to emulate that so we started in 1962 it started in it started in the early fifties as a fairly traditional jazz club, um, a, a hotel uh, sort of hotel jazz club um, in Coventry Street um, by a guy called Jeffrey Kruger. But these two guys, these two brothers, Rick and Johnny Gunnell, came in who were, as far as I can tell, they were jazz fans, but they were pretty street, um, and they came up with the idea of holding holding all nighters. Um, presumably they got the idea from America or maybe even from France, I'm not entirely sure but they brought in all-nighters um, and that was what the Flamingo became famous for what and was it became especially famous when it moved to Wardour Street um, in 57 or 58 What was involved with doing an all-nighter at that time? Because I suppose I having grown up in sort of Britain where like pubs were shut on Sundays mm. for three hours and you know, it got kicked out half past ten Um Imagine that being quite complicated, was it, to get a license to do an online club in central London? Well, I think the key was that they didn't have a license. I mean, I think they had, they had, they had a dancing license, but they didn't have a drinks license. So the Flamingo was unlicensed. That didn't mean you couldn't get into- intoxicating liquors and other substances on the premises. Um, but it didn't have a drinks license, which I think is probably what made it easy to easy to do. Um, the main deal was it opened at uh, sort of 10 p.m., um and you there were two bands they rotated and you danced until dawn 
So you would have to bring your own intoxication or there would be some illegal stuff going on, I assume? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the drugs thing about Flamingo is, is, is interesting. And the drink. Um, you know, I think I think that there were people on, on the premises who would supply you with your needs. Uh, I think it's one of the few places, uh, certainly in central London, where, you know, people were openly smoking weed. Um, there were pills going around and you could get an expense. They, they used to sort of, you know, with a, with a knowing... Uh, phrase, you know, you can get an expensive Coke at the bar, and that would often have maybe a little bit of uh, something else in it to um, keep you going. Maybe you can describe um, Soho at that time, because I mean, the sort of fifties Soho was quite different than Soho now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, not having been there, it, 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 it's hard to imagine. I mean, it would have been, um, it would have been pretty rough. It would have been, it would have been in a red light district to a, to quite a large degree. Um, but also, it would have been, there would have been a lot of um, you know sort of normal shops and premises, and a lot of the you know the like flamingo I think took over an old um, grocer's uh, basement warehouse. You know, it was a lot of these spaces that had been used for storage, you know, for the various street markets in the area that were no longer needed, perhaps quite the same way, um, and that's where the club sort of came in. Uh, it was also you know it was very very cool in that you had. You had various other jazz venues in the area. The Flamingo. You had um, you had Ronnie Scott's just sort of you know around the corner, and you had the Hundred Club not too far away. So that was, you know it was part of that sort of scene. You had Two Eyes was you know was around the corner as well on Old Compton Street. You know there there was that nightlife thing going on in Soho as it was reinventing itself in the in the fifties. Yeah, I mean the Hundred Club and Ronnie Scott's still with us in sort of different forms, yeah, aren't they, absolutely. actually? Um, but rare that anything else is. I mean, Soho, it's had a long history of, of stuff, Soho, and its its fortunes have kind of risen and fallen. And, you know, currently, as we are just talking a minute ago, I mean, it's it's now kind of media place. and yeah. all that. But it's Soho sort of exists, I think, in reality and in, in your mind. I think most people who've come to London, when I came to London, I wasn't born here, mm. unlike you, um, they've got their version of Soho, um, you know, Maybe less so these days because it has changed so much. But it's a bit like the Soho that you first encounter when you come to London, and um, that's how you remember it. And I think the, the most common thing I hear said about Soho is it's changed. Yeah. <laughs> it's not what it used to be. Yeah, we did an interview interestingly with Norman from the Coaching Horses. Oh, you right. know Norman Bell, and the, 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 the famously the rudest yeah. landlord in, in in the country, and you know retired, and he's completely unsentimental about Soho. You expect him to be saying, "Oh, it's not what it used to be," you know. But he's like, no, no, it's 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 changed and it's always changed and that's the way it should be. We can get sentimental about it and uh, look at it through those kind of uh, the, the sort of reverse telescope sort of thing. But the period you're talking about from this distance, particularly the 50s, it does it did seem to be very exotic. I mean, even then, uh, at a time long before multiculturalism, it was quite a ethnically mixed area, wasn't it? Mm. Maltese gangsters and yeah. Italians and French people and all all that. So it was, it was a proper melting pot, wasn't it? Oh yeah, I mean Soho had been that since you know almost since it was sort of created as a district, you know, and that was sort of always made it sort of distinct from Covent Garden and Mayfair, you know, the areas sort of immediately surrounding it. It was this. Uh, this very multicultural area, a lot of Italians and lots of French traditionally, and Maltese. Um, and that definitely allowed, uh, you know, maybe a sort of more vivacious life, uh, nightlife to build up, perhaps because the, the people who lived there were maybe slightly poorer and couldn't complain about the noise. Um, right. Rents were cheaper. 
Um, and it was just generally more sort of welcoming and open to that sort of idea of of a nightlife. And it also, right back until the Victorian times, been associated with vice and mm. the, you know prostitution, particularly, mm-hmm. I suppose, and gambling and all that sort of stuff, which is sort of a little bit that still left. And mm. so it's kind of fertile ground for for a sort of underground jazzy club, wasn't it? Especially an all nighter. I mean, one of the one of the reasons I think that Flamingo was was so popular and successful was that it was a place for the night workers of London to go um, after they'd finished working at you know the, the, their clubs bars and theatres um, you know they, they, they could go there you know they, then they could have an evening and that was pff, unique you know apart from I presume there were a fair number of sort of you know 24-hour illegal drinking dens of various kinds and, and members clubs but for the you know if, if, if you worked on the door you probably wouldn't have access to those sort of places, but you could go to the Flamingo. Right, so let's talk about the crowd. So you've got that, you've got that kind of uh, the, the night, the evening workers, the night workers who are servicing the rest of us, mm. or the rest of us then. Uh, and then, you know, they finish work, they want to go somewhere, they want to have a drink, they want to relax, mm-hmm. they want to hang out, meet people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so they were a big part of the clientele. Who else then? So you had, I mean, the, the, the other thing about Flamingo, I guess, is that it changed. So it started off as a jazz venue. Um, then it did these all-nighters, and then as the 50s turned into the 60s, it became an R&B venue, which was basically soul music, you know, sort of... Um, and and so with that, you know, you got a change in clientele, but what was significant about Flamingo was that it had a large black audience, um, and that was first American GIs, who had quite a significant presence, I still think, in London at that point. Is they that were... Right? Yeah, yeah, they, they, and they had their own clubs as well. And so some of the bands who played Flamingo would then go and play the uh, the GI clubs. Um, so they had, you know, this was one of the places they, they went because um, it was playing the music that they liked from home. Um, but they were eventually banned after one too many uh, sort of uh, violent incidences at the Flamingo. Um, but there was also the uh, the, the British uh, black population would go there, so the West Indians. Um, that was where they would go, most of whom were probably out in West and South London in, you know, I guess black run, you know, uh, enterprises. This was a white run place where the blacks were happy to go, which is, I think, I don't know, but I think it's probably quite unusual. Um, and it's where black and white people mix, which is, again, I think at that time, quite unusual. That's very interesting. I didn't realise that GIs were still around in London at the time. I mean, that's yeah, a, that's I mean, it's one of those things, it depends who you talk about. Some of them say that, you know, they never saw a GI there. Others say that the GIs made a significant part of the audience and that, you know, they and some of the musicians remember playing these GI venues as a result of being at, at the Flamingo. And the... People are running it if they were jazz fans or R&B fans and presumably listening to a lot of American music, a lot of American music made by black artists. Mm -hmm. So they were playing that stuff. And so obviously you've got your hipster beats type Mm -hmm. uh, uh, whiteies, Mm -hmm. uh, the the late night workers. And then that's interesting that um, you've got a black audience as well, Mm -hmm. maybe coming up from Brixton or from West London, Mm -hmm. coming up west Mm -hmm. uh, to a part of town, which I don't suppose at that time you really associated with 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 their culture at all, right? No, I don't think so. I mean, and I think that the the other jazz venues were 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 pretty white. I mean, I think generally speaking. So I think this was it, this is what makes it really unusual and and an interesting place. Um, and you know, and and, that, and it was all about the music that was being played. That's the other thing. It was about the all nighters and the fact this was a place they could go, and every, everyone felt welcome to a certain extent. But also, it's because it was playing music that. A lot of people liked, um, so, which was hard to find elsewhere. So, as ever, music providing this kind of you know 
providing the medium for these people to mix together. Because I think it's important to think, you know, Windrush, you know, it's in the, been in the news recently a lot here, isn't it? And, mm. you know, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of racism in this country mm. towards black people at that time, isn't it? And um, so quite divided communities and a rare opportunity for mix. I think so. I mean, one of the one of the shames that when I wrote about Flamingo, I wrote a piece about it for Uncut magazine, is that I, I couldn't find any um, any black people to talk about their memories of it. Most of the people I spoke to were, were white musicians generally, um, and I'd like to have take I'd like to have, have known more about you know their perspective on it. There's certainly their, if, if either their individual or their folk memory, whether it even has a place in it in in it. Um, right. So you, what you're saying there is is that for white people, it was important that there was a black audience there because they were for them that was like a, a, a valuable cultural mix. For the black community, maybe the flamingo wasn't a big deal in a way. Is that uh, right? Exactly. I mean, I don't know. That's the thing. That's what mm. I'd like to know more about. Um, I'd like to know. I think certainly for the whites, it was it was great for them, especially because they love the music, you know, and, and, and they weren't just playing it to a white audience with, and also they weren't just playing it with other white musicians. The bands themselves were fairly mixed at this point, which again was something that, you know, you, you, you sort of didn't have quite so much later on in the 60s um, when music became much, well, music, music certainly fragmented into white and black. Let's have a tune then, one of the artists who played at the Flamingo. This is the Folk Brothers with Prince Buster and the All-Stars, Oh Carolina. <laughs> Tell us about that track, Pete. Well, that, that's one of the. Um, there's, a, there's an album which says which has a sort of uh, some of his favourite tr- tracks that were played at the um, at the Flamingo, and that's one of them. Um, and as you say, it's a, it's a scar track basically. And I think this is one of the first places in London, certainly in West End, where where you could listen to scar music. They had a scar night um, or a blue beat, I think it was called at the time. There was a blue beat night there, um, and this is they played songs like that, like Oh Carolina, um, and. Some of the some of the, the white bands or some of the bands who played um, the flamingo and the two types of bands who played the flamingo you had you had brilliant touring artists like uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins and uh, Wilson Pickett and Johnny Hooker and um, Stevie Wonder little Stevie Wonder would all play the flamingo and you also had uh, British bands who were kind of uh, playing a, a, an approximation of that music like Georgie Fame and Zoot Money. Um, and Ronnie Knight and the and the Night Riders, I think they were called, uh, well, the Night Timers, um, and a lot of those bands would also play ska. Uh, you know, early '60s, you've got white, white, generally white bands playing playing ska music. I think that's quite 
you know, maybe not maybe not so well known mm. that, that that was going on. Um, and Flengo also had also had black DJs as well. Right. So let's come back to that one. That's an interesting one. But um, so the other part of the audience then presumably is white musicians who are mm. kind of attracted to this club because of the music that's being played there, and then are kind of like soaking it up and and uh, uh, you know reinventing themselves, right? Yeah, I think absolutely. There was a huge, huge audience of um, of, of musicians there, white musicians there. Um, you know, I, I spoke to Zoot Money, who who later um, was one of the sort of headline acts there, um, and he he'd heard about Georgie Fame and he'd heard about this club, and he was at a gig. He was he lived down on the south coast somewhere. He heard about I think Ray Charles was playing at, at the Astoria Finsbury Park, um, or the Rainbow, whatever it was called. Um, and then on the way back, he stopped at the Flamingo and he wanted to he wanted to you know experience this music and this culture and this club that he'd heard so much about. And loads of musicians went there. You know, I think Nick Drake would make pilgrimages into London to go there. Um, as I say, Pete Townsend loved going there. Um, and because you had two bands playing for the all-nighters, the, the, also, you know, that, that band would then stay and watch and listen to the music because there's nowhere else they could really go at that time. And so <laughs> there, was, there was literally nowhere else to go. So they would also, you know, and that was, I think, quite unusual. Normally bands didn't really watch each other that much. Um, they certainly didn't hang out in the club you know, but they had no choice, so it, it was quite. Um, it, 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 there was quite a lot of absorption, I think, of, go, of, of that going on. First there. of all, I mean, Zoot Money sounds like. A, I mean, he doesn't sound like he's from the south coast of England, does he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When he took his name, he obviously changed his name, um, and and that's the other thing. He took his name from Zoot Suits, and that's a kind of mod thing. And that was the other thing about the Flamingo is that. It, it became a very popular mod venue. So the other thing you had going on against the backdrop of the various audience we're talking about is the is the mod audience who who came there, um, and they kind of developed there. I think you know, as far as I can tell, it wasn't really a mod venue, but if you were into that sort of music, you tended to be a mod, and that's where you'd go. Um, you know, what you had across the road from here in Ham Yard is the scene, which happened which opened at around sort of same time, 263. And that was very much a mod venue set up by and for mods. Um, whereas Flamingo was just a place that played that music that mods could go to and enjoy. What is a mod? I mean, it's, let's try and, let's try and, uh, I, mean, I think we know what a rocker is, but what's a mod? What's a mod? I mean, uh, oh God, I mean, you should really ask a mod that and, uh, and they'll, they'll tell you, they'll, they'll tell you in, 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 it's sort of a great detail what a mod is. For me, a mod is um, a certain way of dressing, a certain outlook on life, generally liking, you know, sort of what was originally sort of modernist jazz, modern jazz, and then that's sort of sort of moving into sort of soul and R&B. Um, and it was, about, it, was about, it was about a lifestyle and outlook on life and maybe sort of more ambitious outlook on life than maybe a traditional. Very sharp dressed. Very sharp dressed, clothes very important. Accessories very important. Yeah, Barry Kane um, had an interesting theory, which um, I love it. I don't know whether actually it's ever been established as being fact, but um, he he's talking about the way that working class lads started to dress uh, super sharp at the end of the fifties and early sixties, and he he put it down to the fact that a lot of them had uh, a lot of traditional London terraced houses mm. have been knocked down mm. working class areas and council flats have been built, which mm. we know is the case, post-war. And it was the first time that you could have a full-length mirror in the hall. <laughs> That's so quite good, isn't it? It is good. Yeah. So, you, so if, you were, if you were sort of 17, 18, you could, you could check out, you had to check out, in fact, your entire look, mm, not, mm. Just, uh, not just the top, uh, the top bit in the bathroom mirror. Yeah. So, um, you know, you get these 
kids basically spending most of their disposable income on super sharp suits. Yeah, um, yeah. You might, you might, you might, you might get that suit even in Savile Row or uh, from a Soho tailor around the corner, right? And then you'd be down a club like the Flamingo or the Scene, you know, listening to that music. Yeah, and, and I've talked to musicians and they talk about the first time they, you know, they, they saw a coloured item of clothing in a shop. You know, like they were so used to everything being kind of, you know, monochrome mm. that you know it was. That in itself was was exciting mm. and kind of aspirational. Mm. I mean, you mentioned Pete Townsend, of course. You know, a mm. mod band who you know turned into rockers later, and mm-hmm. quite a few of those bands did that. So, um, uh, though for those bands like Pete Townsend, well, that was that was somewhere that he went to become Pete Townsend. Is it rather than he went there as a as a sort of fully fledged rock royalty? Yeah, no, he definitely. This is sort of early sixties, so we're talking sixty two, sixty three. I mean, Georgie Fame was the kind of important influence on on the flamingo. He, he was, you know, he was the guy who kind of defined the flamingo sound, which was the mod sound, which was, you know, kind of green onions basically. You know, an organ and a vocal and a guitar. Um, that was the flamingo sound, and that was the mod sound. So that's where mods like Pete Townsend would go. Let's have a listen to Sir Georgie Fame at the Flamingo. Isn't it? I mean, it's. All, I mean, coming down the years, it still sounds hot and so yeah. groovy, and it doesn't take much imagination to imagine a Soho basement, you know, high on a, on uppers. You can imagine. Uh, you can imagine how exciting that was. I mean, you know, because uh, before I wrote about the flamingo, I, I didn't really know a great deal about Georgie Fame beyond his name. And you know, in my mind, he was like one of those sort of British pastiche kind of uh, rockers, really, or like you know, or maybe a crooner. I didn't realise he had. You know, such a cool groove, really, with his band. Uh, I mean, his vocals are kind of interesting and and sort of an English attempt to be American, but the groove of the band is 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 fabulous. And 
yeah, you can totally get the you know the the espresso machine and the people dancing and the you know the jumping around. Yeah, it just it's just got a great vibe, and very very different to what was going on in other parts of the country. I mean, you know, you're sort of thinking at this time. You got up in Liverpool. You got the what the Beatles were doing was was, was was far removed from this, really. I mean, very interesting and obviously amazing and brilliant. But this was a really London. This could only really have happened in London, I think. Um, and it's just it's just a lovely sound. I mean, I guess the thing is, it was all covers. You know, there wasn't really anyone attempting to write British versions of this music at this point. I mean, I suppose um, you've got Skiffle going on as well, haven't you? In other places, yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of post-Skiffle, so Skiffle had kind of become this. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think I think what what you can also tell from from listening to George Fame is that, you know, it, it just had a really good ear for, for, for good, you know, it had, good, it had a good ear for a sound. Um, his whole first album was recorded live at the Flamingo, um, Glyn Johns was the engineer. Glyn Johns, sort of very famous record producer in, in later years, so he, he was the engineer. Um, it's a pretty rough and ready sound. The voice you heard right at the beginning was Rick Gunnell announcing the band. So you, you know, and you can hear the audience. You can get a real, f- you know, it really has got a good vibe. I mean, you know, it flopped, and Georgie Fame didn't really have a hit. You know, he was playing the Flamingo for two years, a major, major draw, but it, he couldn't translate that because there was no audience for it outside the Flamingo um, until he kind of wrote a novelty pop song, which then it became his sort of, um, that became his world. Um, I mean, you know, in that band also, he had some really interesting people. So, you know, in, in the very first uh, version of the Blue Flame, you had John McLaughlin was on guitar. John McLaughlin later played with Miles Davis, you know, like one of the greatest uh, jazz guitarists of all time. You know, these were people who were, that's the other thing, you know, a lot of these were jazz musicians who couldn't really anymore get a living playing jazz, but could get a living if they played jazz and R&B, and quite liked R&B, so we're quite happy to do that. Um, so, you know, they're, 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 what I mean is that, you know, they're, they're, they're very good musicians. They're not kind of skiffle band musicians, I guess is what I'm saying. They're jazzers, you know, a lot of the drummers, you know, like, you know, Ginger Baker was, 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 was playing here. You know, there's a lot, of, a lot of good jazz musicians were playing R&B, and that makes for what is a really good, vibe I think you're right I mean Georgie Fame went on and um, he's still going isn't he I mean, he's yeah playing, he's still going plays yeah. keyboards for Van Morrison my mum went and saw him quite recently last year actually I think he's yeah. playing in Guildford <laughs> and, uh, yeah he plays keys for uh, Van Morrison or did for a while yeah. anyway, Van Mor- and of course Van Morrison uh, influenced by that sort of stuff as well wasn't yes, he yes totally yes totally yeah as you said elsewhere, I mean, and, you know, listen to that, it is a sort of American pastiche, isn't it? And, yeah. And, uh, of course, you've made the point elsewhere is that the, the sort of British version of it is a couple of years down the line, isn't it? And maybe even took another club like the UFO, which we talked about, mm. to sort of, you know, invent a kind of British uh, thing instead. But um, so it's this incredible fertile ground. But, I mean, just talk about some of those other American artists that came over. I mean, you listed some earlier, but let's go through them because it was, I mean, this is a small club. I'd love to know more about this because, you know, I, I presume that, you know, there weren't that many venues that were interested in, in having people like this, so like Screaming Jay Hawkins over or even Stevie Wonder. But obviously, you know, the Gunnels had, you know, had good ears. I think they ran their own booking agency as well. So presumably they were tapped into, they knew who was going to be around. And they kind of built a little circuit, I think, of venues. There was, uh, I think there was Ricky Tickies they ran and there was another one. in. there were a few venues... 
Um, there was there was uh, Peter Stringfellow's club up in Sheffield, the King Mojo. There was one up in Newcastle, I forget its name now. But there was a little circuit of these venues that were playing this music where if you could get an American tour, touring artist over, you could then send them up and, and make enough money for it for them to be worthwhile. Um, yeah, and that was how they got these, these guys over. And, well, let's just go through them, some of the people that they did get over. I mean, it's uh, we could go through that list. It's absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So Stevie Wonder, um, little, little Stevie Wonder as he was then, Screaming Jay Hawkins. I think I think there's um, a story that Scream, when Screaming Jay Hawkins played, he, was, he kind of was brought onto the stage in a coffin and then he kind of arose from the coffin and started bellowing out his songs. Um, I think Solomon Burke played there. Um, and you had sort of, you know, John Lee Hooker. I think some of the more sort of traditional blaz, uh, bl- bl- blues artists also played there. Um it was, yeah, an incredible uh, snapshot. So for a lot of musicians who weren't just there playing the all-nighters, this was also a chance for them to see these guys who they'd only ever heard on record before. Um, Ella, did you mention Ella Fitzgerald? Yeah, 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 yeah. when it was a jazz venue, I think, yeah. yeah absolutely amazing. Isn't it? I think Sam Hunt, uh, Hank Wankford, I think he mentioned um, being there when Solomon Burke was playing. Yeah. Solomon Burke, the giant, hugely, yeah, hugely huge fat guy, yeah. guy, yeah. And he said um, there was a woman behind him um, shouting at the top of her voice, I want to fuck you, I want to fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> All the way through the song. And, this, and I, think he was, I think he came on stage and he had his own throne. Yeah, yeah, and, that's uh, what he used to do. And, and a crown, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the, king yeah. Of, the king of R&B. Um, Sam also said, I mean, you know, we talked a bit earlier that, um, that there were regular raids mm. um, by the sort of the Soho police. Of course, it's well known now, and this is no secret, that the, the police in Soho were totally, the vice corps were totally bent, weren't mm. they? I mean, it's, that's the sort of accepted fact by the police. Mm. Um, so the raids presumably would have been either in, in, in prompting, the prompting of some you know, politician or some local official, mm. um, or just a kind of rinse down money-making exercise, right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's difficult to talk about this without, uh, without my lawyers being present, but I think the Gunnels were um, were kind of, I, I don't know, I, th- I think that they, 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 they were, had a, uh, an understanding of, the, um, of that world, perhaps, and, and there were times maybe when these raids were also retribution, perhaps for, you know, for things not being done the way they, they should have been done. Um, there's some great pictures of the Flamingo being raided, um, but when you inter- interview people, they don't, they don't remember witnessing that many raids. You know, it was always a problem. But other people have said that one of the things about Flamingo was that the police were quite happy generally because they knew that if all the you know if all the kind of Soho demi monde were in one place, then at least they knew where they were. You know, and that was kind of preferable to having them out in the streets where they might corrupt, you know, normal people. Um, so it's difficult. You get, as ever with these, with these, with these things, you get sort of different uh, recollections of what was going on. Um, there definitely were, uh, you know, there were incidents. I mean, you know, there was a very famous incident involving uh, Christian Keeler um, at the uh, at the Flamingo. Let's talk about that. I mean, for people who don't know, Christian Keeler was. So Christine Keeler was the uh, was the woman involved in the Profumo scandal. She um, had an affair with John Profumo, the uh, Secretary of War, was it Secretary of Defence? Um, while she was also having an affair with a Soviet sort of naval attaché, but she was a regular at the Flamingo um, in the sort of sixty two, six sixty one, She worked in Soho in various uh, clubs and bars, um, and so she was one of those people who would go down there for uh, after her after her shift. And she, uh, two of her um, of her former boyfriends, 
happened to come across each other at Flamingo and um, an altercation ensued. I think one of them ended up with uh, stitches that got slashed in the face, got several stitches. Um, and in retribution, uh, he went to her house where this, where, where she was with her other, with her new boyfriend, fired shots, um, and in the ensuing kind of uh, investigation, uh, the Profumo scandal sort of came to light. And it, did it nearly bring the government down or something at one point? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it brought down, um, yeah, it essentially brought down a change of government. I mean, it's it's not immediate, but mm. but it certainly was a massive change is in, um, in, in people's maybe um, awareness of, of what politicians could get up to. And it became I mean, a, it became a sort of uh, signal story from the sixties, didn't it, with the film Scandal and all that later. Yes, totally. She, totally. she became a kind of pin up, wasn't it? You know, and it was a watershed. It was a watershed moment. Yeah, and obviously she she was a pin up, but she was a regular at the um, at, at the Flamingo. It was one of the places. She's also a regular at UFO, actually, which is quite interesting. Uh, Sam Hutt said that uh, on the drug front, he said um, at the Flamingo. I don't know whether it was the Gunnels or somebody else, the M- just the MC, but they'd obviously get warning of a raid coming. So you'd interrupt the band and say, tell everybody they're on the way. Mm. And then there'd be this kind of shower of mm. kind of, uh, of, of, of the scattering of kind of noises as all these pills were hitting the floor. <laughs> <laughs> By the time the police came and they sort of walked through the stage with crunching away on a, a, yeah. a, on various uh, 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 medication. And well, you can imagine they had lookouts up there. I mean, you know, it was a basement club. It was on Wardour Street. It was on the sort of Chinatown side of, of Wardour Street. Mm street really so it's kind of not quite soho really um but they would have you know and also you know it was at the time of night when there weren't that many people around so it would have been very difficult for the police to have mounted a raid without being spotted yeah and then they sort of maybe pick somebody up just for form's sake and haul them off and then as soon as they're gone the band would start up again and yeah. the business would be resumed there does seem to have been you know a surprising degree of tolerance for what mm-hmm. was going on there I think what you said earlier is probably true, isn't it? Is that the police? I mean, look. Let's be honest. I mean, there's, they're still the same now, really, aren't they? They can't admit it officially, but you know, they prefer to compartmentalise it. It's going on here. Mm. We kind of know about it, but mm. you know, as long as it's here and nobody's getting hurt mm. and it's you know, it's it's doing its own thing, we'll kind of leave it in peace generally. Yeah, and I think I think in in the West End, I think the police have had to take that attitude. I interviewed a club owner recently, and he said, you know, well, you know what. What people knew, what the police knew, and what the punter knew is that you couldn't buy on our premises. But if you brought stuff in, then you know, then that was that was legit. You know, you know, you you, you could you could carry stuff, but you couldn't as long as there weren't people actually selling in the club, then that was fine. Because um, I think that was that then became dangerous for the club owners. Um, so maybe it was the same as Flamingo. I don't know whether people bought on the streets and then came in again. Yeah, I mean, uh, you get the impression, say, talking. Um you know, about, say, Paul Raymond and stuff later, that there was a kind of reciprocal arrangement between mm. the uh, the movers and shakers and the property owners and the the promoters and, you know, in, in Soho and the police. And, of course, it got very dodgy, I think, didn't it, with the Vice mm. Squad, and there was a big shake-up in the 70s, much mm, later mm, on. Mm, mm, mm. Um, so going back to uh, uh, Flamingo, Pete, so you've got this incredible situation, mixed or, mixed audience, mixed cultures, music coming in from the States, run by these two brothers who were obviously massive music fans mm. and presumably quite well connected to get these artists mm. over. You've got people like Pete Townsend and uh, coming along and sort of, you know, getting their creative juices flowing. So what happened next? I mean, as, as it's going into the kind of mid-60s, how's it looking in there? Well, I mean, I think the Flamingo was remarkably consistent and perhaps possibly to a fault in that it had its signature sound and it stuck with it. 
uh, as the as the music world was changing. Um, you know, it, it perhaps didn't sort of um, embrace the changes that were coming with sixty five, sixty six, with you know, Revolver and and you know, a, a shift in emphasis in music um, until it was too late. Um, so through that period, it continued to, you know, so it had, you know, after Georgie Fame sort of became too big and moved on, um, Zoot Money came in and did the same thing. And then there was Ronnie Knight in the nighttime who did the same thing. They brought in John Mayall's Blues Breakers, who were a slightly different version, but essentially were still doing that thing. Um, I think that they were frowned upon because they didn't have an organ. Um, you also had bands like the Grand Bond Organization, a fantastic, um, heavy R&B band who were playing there. Um... But as music was, you know, was going overground, I guess, in a lot of ways with pop and Small Faces and The Who and The Kinks, they weren't really able to bring those sort of bands in. I think that was the thing is that you didn't really see those bands appearing there. Um, the Stones played there. I mean, this, this, is, this is an interesting point, really, is that the, the Stones played there um, and they were a disaster because they were just too messy and too shambolic, you know, both in appearance and musically for the uh, flamingo audience which wanted a very uh, a very tight sound as you could hear on georgie fame and georgie fame kind of um you know his band kind of looks as he sounds you know very sharp uh well, you can this... imagine you've got mods there i mean super sharp dressed Absolutely. and then, then it's got this whole legacy of people like elephants gerald and stuff coming over this yeah. jazz club i mean they were used to like top draw american musicians yeah and so a sort of you know brattish youngs uh you know People like the Stones and stuff at that time were kind of uh, imitating American music and sort of, uh, you know, quite shambolically so, would have seemed like amateurs, I guess. Right? I think exactly that. I mean, you know, the Stones were seen exactly as that, you know, as amateurs. And what you did have is very nearby is the Marquee, which uh, which was much more welcoming to that sort of band, that sort of music. And so the Marquee kind of took over at that point because that's where the Who and the and the and the and the um, and the faces, small faces, and the Stones would play. Um, the Flamingo was, it just you know their music wasn't good. Enough. You know what? What um, I can't remember who told me about this, but they said you know the, the problem with with the Flamingo was that it was like all those people who wanted to be in bands like Georgie Fame, you know, they, they weren't good enough. You know, or, you know, they so it was their they were up their nose was against the, the window. They couldn't play there, so they went to the Marquee, where they became absolutely, obviously huge and, and vital. Um, and the Flamingo almost became a victim of its own success in a strange way, or its own standards, its own very high standards, couldn't be um, met by the music that was that was coming after it. Let's have a listen to Zoot Money because his story is interesting in terms of this club and what happened next, isn't it? Mm. A newsboy on a paper For a time I worked an elevator All the time I knew the later I would be a higher rater Finally a big time Yeah. 
super cool, isn't it? I mean, um, amazing yeah. and, and and super sharp. You know, they can do it. He sounds still sounds a bit American, I guess. But I mean, um, but you can totally hear the lineage from the Georgie fame, isn't there? I mean, it's yeah. the same. It's the same vibe. And of course, interesting uh, with Zeke Money because, as we've talked about before, he reinvented himself, mm. didn't he, for the new. The new yeah. generation. So, so he, he sort of changed his band and, and became uh, Dant- Dantillion's Chariot, which was his kind of psychedelic. And they, he played UFO as, as, as that. Um, I don't know how seriously he was taken, actually. He, he was an example of someone who was trying desperately to catch what was going on. I mean, the other problem with the flamingo is, I guess if you listen to that, you can hear the kind of importance of the horns and the organ. You know, it's, it requires a lot more musicians than um, you had in the new bands, which are generally three or four piece. So, you know, nearly, nearly most of them are four piece. Um, these are sort of seven or eight pieces quite often. Um, and also music was getting bigger and the sounds were getting bigger. And it was just uh, venues like the Flamingo just weren't big enough. I mean, you know, they just simply weren't physically big enough to, to hold bands of, you know, the sound, that kind of sound. So whereas Georgie Hume had gone off with his, you know, sort of like novelty record and made it big in a different kind of way. So for somebody like Zoot Money, who's you know ambitious young guy, mm. and he's looking over towards Tottenham Cut Road and UFO and seeing what all the um, the new kids are doing. And maybe yeah, maybe... and you know, in a lot of sense, that's what a lot of music is about, isn't it? Mm. It's about sort of following trends and 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 mm. you know, you can't always get there first, but you certainly don't want to get there last. Um, and yeah, he was one of those who was trying to do that. Um, Others did it in different ways. I mean, you know, one of the bands who sort of were fo- sort of came out of Flamingo were, were Cream because you know uh, all the members of Cream had played at bands who were big at the Flamingo. Uh, they kind of formulated their sound there to a certain extent, but then they were way too big to play the Flamingo. So they, you know, they, but you know that was a, a sound that came from that from that club. And people like Gin- well Ginger Baker, obviously, and then yeah. they went on to be. You know, part of that whole scene in a different way, didn't he? You mentioned uh, John McLaughlin and mm-hmm. Steve Winwood. Yeah, yeah, he would have played there. God, I can't remember what band he was in. He he played there. Um, I mean, I think he can't remember who he played there with. Um, most of them did play there. I mean, Clapton played there. You know, and obviously, you know, then that's where him and Baker kind of kind of hit it off. Um, it was a place where everyone who then became anyone would play, but they would not play that kind of music at that, at that venue. I think that's the important thing. It didn't happen there. It then went, they went somewhere else. They went to the Marquee or they went to the 100 Club or they went, or they went to you know, bigger venues generally. And I guess the audience themselves would start to move, wouldn't they? You know, if something's been, if something else is happening down the road, which is super groovy and super hip, you know, then the audience themselves, maybe a younger yeah. audience starts to go there. Right? I mean, a scene only has a quite short... Mm. You know, shelf life, generally speaking, you know, before people grow up and they, you know, people just grow up and move on, you know, they, they can't keep doing what they did in their early 20s. Um, and the younger people aren't interested in what in what their, their, their sort of um, elder peers did. So what happened to the Flamingo? The Flamingo, um, well, you know, much like um, Zoot Money, it tried desperately to kind of cash in on, on the changing environment around it. And it renamed itself the Pink Flamingo. Um, painted itself pink and tried to become a psychedelic club um, but it just didn't work it wasn't authentic it wasn't real um, it then I think the Gunnels then lost control of it I'm not quite sure but it became the Temple and the Temple seems to be quite interesting in that quite a lot of kind of early sort of like the Queen, Queen played there and bands like that sort of bands who have become quite big in the 70s and sort of in that prog scene maybe they played there but by all accounts it was a dive you know it was a it was a it, it lost you know it, it hadn't been done up in god knows how long and a bit of 
pink on the wall wasn't going to change that. So it was no longer a cool place to play. And it certainly lost its, you know, its original uh, focus, which was that, that sound and that audience. You what? know, there were other places that were doing that. I mean, UFO himself was, was an all-nighter. What was what is it now? Do you know? Now it's um, it's a branch of O'Neill's, I think. What's O'Neill's? Uh, oh, the Irish pub. So it's that huge Irish pub um, on Wardour Street. Um, it was in the basement there, and above it was the Whiskey a Go Go, which was sort of more of a sort of traditional nightclub restaurant, which then became in the eighties the Wag Club, which was uh, a very trendy club in the eighties. So in that sort of psychogeographic way of uh, that London and most cities probably have, there's the sort of ghost of it lived on in various yeah, incarnations, right? Yeah, absolutely it did. Um, you know, it remained an, an, a venue up until where the WAG closed, which I, I don't think when that was. I think it was in the 90s. It might even have been in the early 2000s. Let's have a listen to Graham Bond, because he and his organisation, this classic sort of 60s name, mm. the Graham Bond organisation, <laughs> um, he sort of epitomised it in his later years, right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, John McLaughlin was in this band as well. So this was a band that were formed, you know, again, out of the meetings of various different members of different bands. Um, at Flamingo, they kind of liked each other's vibe and they decided to then form their own band, Graham Bond and, and John McLaughlin. It's very groovy and it's got sort of shades of or premonitions, I suppose, really, of, of later sort of Soho scenes, doesn't it? Like uh, Easy Listening and the uh, the um, uh, acid jazz. Yeah, totally. I mean, and I was going to say, there's definitely the, you can hear the jazz there. I mean, you've got Jack Bruce and, and Ginger Baker on, on, on the rhythm section. Um, you can really hear the jazz influence in that much more, I think, than you can in the Georgie Fame and the, and the Zoot Money, which is kind of a bit, bit sort of harder. Um, yeah, and I would have thought that um, acid jazz would would give itself a direct lineage back to the Flamingo. I mean, it'd be interesting to talk to Eddie Piller about all that. Um, he would probably be able to talk about that at some length. Um, absolutely. And 
from your uh, piece, you know, you interviewed Zoot Money, and uh, I love this thing he said the, about the place, you know, which is now a theme pub, sort of, isn't it? A chain mm-hmm. pub, anyway. And he says, he, you said he's, he still thinks there's some kind of magic about the place. It had an aura about it, he says. There are spirits still lurking in the basement, groovy spirits waiting for it to spark up again, and then people can come down and start dancing. Yes, totally. Yeah, no, I really like that. And I talked to Jeff Dexter as well, the DJ who was. Um, who played at the scene and he also played there and he sort of said you know after the interview he goes oh, i just want to go back down to the flamingo right now take some pills <laughs> find some girls and start dancing <laughs> he also said something great about the flamingo and he said um, he said he said you could he said if you went to flamingo you knew you'd find some trouble and i said well you know what do you mean by trouble and he goes well there's two kinds of trouble there's the trouble you want and there's the trouble you don't want and you can get both <laughs> kinds at the flamingo <laughs> right so the trouble you don't want would be like getting glassed by some yeah guys, yeah that would be a bit of violence and the trouble you want is maybe some interesting drugs or some female companionship for, for the night <laughs> well who knows what they get up to in there now we're probably having a Kaylee <laughs> dancing jigs and reels maybe you can check it out uh, when it's open again Perhaps they'll let you in the basement and you can try and uh, soak up some of the sweaty atmosphere of days of yore. It's at uh, 33 to 37 Wardour Street. That's it. Thanks very much to Pete Watts. You can check out Pete's work at his amazing blog, thegreatwhen.com, W-E-N, for his writings on music, culture and London. We'll be back soon uh, with more Tales from the Counterculture. We're going to finish with the song, the track Flamingo, played by Kenny Graham's Afro-Cubist. They were the house band for a while at the Flamingo Club. Cheers, Pete. Thank you very much. Afro-Cubist finishing this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture with the song Flamingo. You can check out more about what we do at www.bureauoflostculture.com. We'll be back next time with Tales from the Counterculture. Looking forward to seeing you, hearing you, or sharing this virtual space with you then. Ta-ta.